from VOA, Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our special guest on this edition of the program is a man who specializes in public communication and how ideologues, extremists, and even politicians weaponize words. Kurt Braddock is professor of public communication at the School of Communication at American University here in Washington. He is the author of the book, Weaponized Words, The Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter-Radicalization. According to his website, Kurt Braddock also holds a faculty fellow position at the Center for Media and Social Impact. He has also consulted for the U.S. Department of Defense, Homeland Security, and the U.N. Office for Counterterrorism. Kurt Braddock's research focuses on the persuasive strategies used by violent extremist groups to recruit and radicalize audiences targeted by their propaganda. Kurt also explores how theories of communication, persuasion, and social influence can inform practices meant to prevent radicalization among vulnerable audiences. Kurt Braddock is currently interested in the development of counter-radicalization strategies that prevent white supremacism, neo-Nazism, and the adoption of other violent far-right ideologies. And Kurt Braddock joins us via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Carol, thank you so much for having me here. I very much appreciate it. Kurt Braddock, your book gives examples of how terrorist groups persuade audiences to adopt their ideologies and how this process can be fought. Does this go beyond terrorist groups and apply, as I alluded to in the introduction, to politicians and others who trade in hate speech and bigotry, similar to what we're seeing by former President Donald Trump and other right-wing politicians here and around the world? It does. One of the reasons that I like taking a communication framework to understand terrorist groups and violent extremist groups is because a lot of the principles that we know about persuasion, social influence, and things of that nature, they apply across the board. So the same way that somebody might be persuaded to buy a car or to join a book club, a lot of those same principles apply to things like violent extremism and terrorism which means that it also applies to things like more, quote, traditional political communication that we're seeing from political pundits, from online, quote, experts, and yes, politicians, elected officials. So a lot of the things that I discuss and many of the things that I study, although I've looked at them in the realm of extremism and terrorism, I think we're seeing a little bit of overlap now with more mainstream type politicians. In that vein, Kurt, I'm very fascinated by a term you use in some of your writings, stochastic terrorism, which you define as the use of mass communications to incite random actors to carry out violent or terrorist attacks that are statistically predictable, but individually unpredictable. This is a fascinating concept, and it seems key to understanding the connections between rhetoric and acts of violence. So, Kurt, would you please elaborate on this concept and why you think it's so relevant today? Well, as you alluded to, we've seen an increase in what we might call extremist speech among those who are in the mainstream, politicians, pundits who have very large audiences. And that gets at the center of stochastic terrorism, the size of one's audience. The term stochastic is a bit annoying. It's born from statistics, which nobody finds particularly interesting. But to understand stochastic processes, these are processes that randomly occur but are guaranteed to occur. 
So to give you some examples outside of terrorism or any kind of social science, consider the idea that you're sitting on the front porch of your house and you're looking on the horizon and you see storm clouds rolling in. Now, you know enough to know that when you see storm clouds like that, lightning is going to strike somewhere within a few miles. It's impossible to predict when and where it might strike, but it will strike. So by extending that to stochastic terrorism, when an individual has an audience of a very large scale, and we're talking magnitudes of thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of people, which is not outside the realm of possibility with the use of social media and the degree to which some rhetoric gets amplified via more traditional media. When somebody has an audience of that size, if they say something that seems to justify violence or advocate violence, even if they say it just jokingly or if they don't overtly direct violence, when you have an audience comprised of millions of people, each of which has a, say, 0.0001% chance of taking what they say as a call to action, when you multiply that over millions of people, you approach certainty that at least one person will interpret it as a call to action and will engage in violence on behalf of what was said, even in the absence of an overt direct to engage in violence. So, for example, when during the debates in the 2000 election, former President Trump said, proud boys stand back and stand by. He claimed that he didn't mean anything by that, that he didn't mean to direct any kind of violence or be ready for violence. But with such a large audience, it's a near certainty that somebody, a proud boy or somebody who is aligned with proud boys will interpret it as a call to violence. We saw another example of this earlier this year with the Buffalo supermarket shooting, where the shooter cited great replacement theory, which is the conspiracy theory that white individuals in the United States are being replaced by minorities to secure a better voting demographic for the left-wing parties in the U.S. Now, this theory was amplified on right-wing talk shows, Tucker Carlson. Other certain politicians amplified it, and sure enough, one individual interpreted great replacement theory as a call to violence, and we saw what happened in Buffalo. So the essence of stochastic terrorism is that an individual has a large platform on which they make statements that can be interpreted as calls to violence, and the audience is sufficiently large that at least one person will interpret it as a call to engage in violent action. And then that leads me to ask you about what former President Trump said leading up to the January 6th insurrection. As you recall, he made a speech on the ellipse. He used some seemingly innocuous or ambiguous language, which in actuality was code for condoning and encouraging acts of violence, which he then could later try to disassociate himself from. Talk about that speech on the ellipse and the connection between that speech and the violence we saw subsequently. Well, exactly. That speech I cite as kind of the match that lit the tinder that led to the attack on the Capitol building. But there were statements made by Trump and others in the lead up, even to January 6th, that advocated for the same things. But if we're talking about just the 6th and the speech on the ellipse in particular, there were several things that were said during that speech that could be interpreted as a justification for engaging in aggressive or violent action. Scattered throughout the speech, former President Trump consistently invoked belligerent language using the term fight, talking about being a boxer with one hand tied behind their back, talking about getting tougher if we're going to, quote, save the country and save the Republican Party. So there were all these allusions to 
fighting to getting aggressive against those he perceived as enemies, continually riling up an already riled up crowd. So by invoking that language, it could have put the idea in people's heads that, quote, fighting, whatever he meant by that, was necessary to save the Republic, in his words. There was also an individual earlier that made a statement that said that the audience needed to engage in, quote, trial by combat in order to save the Republic and stop the steal of the election, the purported stop the steal of the election. So there were many individuals that made statements that day that they could later distance themselves from, but they nonetheless were interpreted as calls to violence. And it's not too much of a stretch to understand why they did so. And Kurt Braddock, continuing with your background in mass communications, what is your overall assessment of the U.S. political landscape and, of course, the role of social media platforms and other platforms, talk radio and some of the cable channels, in amplifying extremist rhetoric and, with regard to social media, amplifying extremist posts? And what is their impact on voters in an already polarized country? Well, I think the term you just used, polarized, is the key. And I mean, it's no surprise that we're more polarized than we've been in decades, potentially more than than 150 years of American history, I think we might be at our most polarized right now. And social media, I think, is one of the reasons why. Social media in and of itself is not necessarily harmful as it's designed or as it's meant to be designed. But unfortunately, the way that social media has evolved over the years since its inception or since it's really gotten pervasive is that the algorithms put us into ideological echo chambers, these little rooms where we're not exposed to any ideas that challenge our own. And research shows what happens when we get into these echo chambers, we're more likely to amplify our own beliefs and attitudes about a particular topic, and we are more likely to be exposed to stuff that could be considered to be extremist in nature, like communications from extremist groups or communications from those who would have people engage in violence. So because we get into these echo chambers and it's human nature to seek out information that reinforces our own beliefs, we continue to get more and more polarized as we engage in these social media circles. So I think social media has played a significant role in cultivating polarization among the body politic in the United States. And thus far, we haven't figured out a way to use social media to reduce the polarization or reduce the risk facing us right now. Well, regarding social media, we also have polarization on that very topic insofar as that many Republican politicians, more on the right, are saying that these platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, that they promote more center-left language, when in fact many observers would say the opposite, that they actually promote right-wing messages. So we can't even seem to agree on what is being represented on these platforms, but they certainly should have a responsibility in policing what is in fact acceptable speech and what is not, so as to reduce this connection between this kind of propaganda, which is false information, and then violence. I completely agree that there's a responsibility there among the, the tech companies and the social media platforms to police their platforms. One of my biggest pet peeves is the claim that if Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any other platform takes down content that it's censorship or that it violates First Amendment rights of Americans who post it. These platforms, they are unable to violate one's First Amendment rights. The government can violate your First Amendment rights. If the government restricts your speech, then yes, then your First Amendment rights are violated. But when a platform takes down content, it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. That amendment only protects you from government censorship, not Elon Musk censorship. Now, if we look at current 
current trajectories and current trends in terms of hate speech, in terms of extremism, and in terms of actual violent incidents and plots of violent incidents, both planned online and offline, with and without the help of social media, the far right far outpaces the far left. Although the left does have some incidents where there are individuals invoking aggression and violence, if we look at it from a raw numbers perspective and we look at the ratio of one side to the other, we shouldn't engage in false equivalencies. Although the left does engage in these sorts of things, including stochastic terrorism on occasion, the far right does it at magnitudes much, much greater than what the left does. So I do think that the platforms bear a responsibility to monitor the content on their platforms, that they should take down content that does advocate for violence. But as I said, I don't want to be accused of giving credence to what would be a false equivalency to say that the threat is equal from both sides. You are listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guest is Kurt Braddock. He's professor of public communication at American University. I'm Carol Castiel. We are discussing the power of propaganda in the hands of extremist groups and individuals and how to combat it. This is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voaafrica.com PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now, here's a shout out to one of our most loyal listeners, Mark Versteeg from Down Under in Australia. Thanks so much, Mark. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our special guest, Kurt Braddock, about this fascinating topic. And Kurt, you were talking about how social media platforms amplify hate speech and that Statistically speaking and uh, empirically speaking, it seems like the far right groups, they are far more culpable for this type of action. Now, speaking of censorship and the First Amendment, this is a fascinating topic because, of course, a lot of people who use extremist language or exaggerated language always hide behind our First Amendment rights here in the United States, saying that their speech is protected by the First Amendment and I'd like to know from your point of view, how does this complicate the ability for us to push back against what you have defined as stochastic terrorism? In other words, how can we draw a line on that type of communication, which could very well lead to violence, but not in, in an overt way? In other words, the kind of language that insinuates that violence is likely and is welcome upon hearing you know, this type of language. Well, it does complicate how we address it. But I myself, speaking personally, I'm a very staunch First Amendment advocate. I'm a big believer in the freedom of speech to not be infringed upon by the government. And per previous Supreme Court decisions, there's one Brandenburg versus Ohio, things like what I describe as stochastic terrorism, it doesn't meet the level, the threshold of actual legal incitement. So technically, what I describe is protected First Amendment speech. Now, it's important to recognize that just because what I call stochastic terrorism is not legally actionable, it doesn't mean that we should tolerate it. What I mean by that is just because something is protected by the First Amendment or protected by any amendment doesn't mean that it doesn't have negative implications. And we've seen the implications for years now. We see what can happen when this kind of language goes unchecked. Now, if it can't be checked using legal approaches, what options are available to us? 
So I think the first step is understanding how this kind of language affects people. It's cloudy the way that people understand how language can lead to action, especially subtext and implicit language. But helping people, helping the public understand that even implicit language has negative implications, sometimes violent implication, is step number one. That these words do have consequences, and these consequences can include anything up to and including murder. So first step is understanding that. Once we understand that, we can start to make decisions about the kind of ramifications that we want to impose upon people that do this. If we understand that an individual is guilty of something like stochastic terrorism, though not legally actionable, do we want to vote for people like that? Do we want to vote for people who we know can be implicated in motivating violent action, even if they're not guilty of legal incitement to terrorism? So there are democratic solutions available to us. I think there are also solutions that are available to us, especially among those who advocate for these positions, who engage in stochastic terrorism on public platforms. They are often supported by advertising revenue, and the public has an outlet by which they can refuse to buy products that are advertised on platforms that advocate these individuals who engage in this kind of language. Again, it's not legal action, but it is a solution that can put pressure on people not to engage in this kind of rhetoric. So it is First Amendment protected. I think given that the Supreme Court decided that it doesn't meet the threshold for legal incitement to terrorism, it should be protected as a First Amendment advocate myself. But I also believe in repercussions for motivating the kinds of actions that we're seeing. So there are a couple of non-legal routes that we have that can hopefully put pressure on our elected officials and public pundits to move away from this kind of language that indirectly advocates for violence. Those are very interesting observations. Kurt Braddock, let's turn now to your research and observations on the global level. We know that words are weaponized around the world, especially in autocracies and authoritarian regimes like Russia and especially China. In fact, propaganda is literally a stock in trade in China. What are your observations regarding any number of countries around the world besides the United States? And why are so many democratic regimes succumbing to the use of, I guess we could call it stochastic terrorism, this type of words that lead potentially to violence? Well, something interesting that's happened in parallel with the ascension of Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016, we also saw around the same time, maybe for some countries a bit earlier, some countries a bit later, the ascension of other populist leaders in Western Europe and in other countries that we traditionally think of as democratic countries. And the ascension of those leaders, they kind of mutually developed the blueprint for using this kind of rhetoric that pushes the otherization, the demonization of those they see as enemies. A couple of countries where we've seen it occur in the last decade, Poland has had the ascension of the elements of the far right that engage in this kind of language. We see similar kinds of language used in France with Le Pen. There were some who used this kind of language in Italy, and there are some elements that we see it in places like Australia and other kinds of countries like that. So it's not unique to the United States whatsoever. This kind of language, it's important to note that it's nothing new. It's just that the recent, if you'll forgive the pun, explosion of it is largely fueled by the fact that 
they have these platforms at their disposal where they can reach much larger audiences they could in the past. And many of those audiences are simply looking for an excuse to engage in the kind of violent action that they've always thought about. So as you alluded to, it, it's been a global phenomenon and it shows no signs of really slowing because as Trump and others showed, this kind of rhetoric can be a winning political strategy. Now, what happens in 2024, I think will be very telling to see whether or not the body politic in the U.S. and Western Europe is willing to allow this kind of rhetoric to go unchecked. But it's my hope that in the coming years that people start to impose these democratic solutions on politicians that use this kind of language. Kurt, I have a rather simplistic question, face of it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Kurt Braddock, why do people believe liars? You know, we've seen this political violence unleashed by conspiracy theories here in the United States, of course, perpetrated by former President Donald Trump about the 2020 election in particular. It's all amplified on right-wing cable news and talk radio. These outlets and Mr. Trump himself and allies spread patently false claims about the 2020 election, continue to do so to this day. December of 2022, mischaracterize, often distort democratic policy positions, whether on abortion, immigration, crime, while engaging in hypocrisy. Again, as silly as it sounds, why do people believe lies? Well, that is a simple question, but with several possible answers to it. I'll try to give a couple here. In my observations, in my research and others' research, and even not just recent research, but research going back decades, it shows that people who hold certain positions are really just looking for any reason to have their beliefs and have their attitudes reinforced. So even if something is an outright lie, if it reinforces beliefs that somebody already has, they are more than willing to go ahead and adopt it. So it's not the adoption of beliefs in the same way that you come to believe that Santa Claus may or may not be real, but it's instead that you have a predisposed attitude towards something. And when somebody gives you a reason why your predisposed beliefs or attitudes are correct, people are more than happy to jump on those and adhere to them. So I think that's part of what's going on here. There are a couple other reasons that these lies are so effective and they have been effective for decades is they are straight out of the old Soviet propaganda handbook. And the old Soviet propaganda handbook has been very, very effective for many, many years. Now, that handbook has several strategies to it, but the two that I see that are most commonly used here, especially among elements of the populist right, former President Trump and others, are what you call the big lie and the fire hose of information. The big lie everybody is relatively familiar with. It's the idea that if you tell a lie big enough and simply repeat it over and over again, that people think that there's no way that it could be false. It's too too big a bit of information to be false. So people naturally gravitate towards it, especially if they're predisposed to believe it. The other is something that affects, I think, individuals who might otherwise be interested in thinking about the information they're exposed to. There's an old Soviet strategy called the fire hose of information or the fire hose of disinformation. The idea being that we, as humans, we only have a certain capacity for thinking about certain information and discerning what's true and what's false. And if we're exposed to too much information, we are not able 
to decide what's true and what's false on the basis of facts. Instead, we rely on what we call heuristics, little cognitive shortcuts to help us make those decisions. So the idea being that if you simply tell enough lies over and over again and completely inundate your audience with these lies, they're unable to tell what's true and what's false. So because they can't do so, they can't think about the arguments, they rely on little mental shortcuts like, do they like the person who's speaking? Do they see similarities between the person who's speaking and themselves? Do they perceive the person who's speaking to be an expert? Now, that all has nothing to do with the actual truth or falsehood of the content being spoken or being told, but that's what people rely on. So if somebody likes former President Trump, for example, and he espouses on the magnitude of tens of thousands of lies via Twitter over the course of his administration, that person's gonna rely on the fact that they simply like former President Trump to decide that what he's saying is true because they don't have the capacity to go through all the content and decide what's true and what's false. So those are only a couple of reasons. There are literally dozens of other reasons why people buy into lies that on their face seem just so false. But more often than not, they are taken straight out of the old Soviet propaganda and disinformation handbook where you said earlier that many countries are trying to emulate former President Trump's speech. He, in fact, and others are, as you said, borrowing from the Soviet playbook. They are just experts in this gaslighting disinformation. Well, speaking of gaslighting, here's another example of speech, but it has a little different twist, Kurt Braddock. So I'd like to get your take on this. Mr. Trump more recently has used a technique where he says something outrageous, like advocating suspending the U.S. Constitution in the context of that big lie that the 2020 election was illegitimate, which of course is patently false. Then he uses these words, they cause a nationwide uproar, even among Republicans. And then Mr. Trump denies having said them or falsely blames the media for distorting his words. How do you characterize this type of rhetoric? And why does Trump and other populist politicians often get away with what can only be called, as I said, gaslighting or psychological manipulation? Well, this might be a little bit an unpopular thing to say, but I do think that even some of those who maybe share some ideological positions with somebody like former President Trump, in a sense, they're being manipulated too. Some people don't like hearing that because they're made out to be victims. But this sort of gaslighting does manipulate people who would be ideologically adherent to somebody like Trump who might be pulling away from him. It is, as it's defined, a form of gaslighting, a way to maintain the image of impartiality while clearly we have evidence, we have tape, we have everything else to show that he has said these certain things. So the reason that people buy into it is because of what I said earlier, that people People feel that they already are ideologically adherent to former President Trump, so everything else he says has to be true as well. I think we need to recognize that the people who have bought into his lies in the past, they need to be shown what those lies are and how they've been manipulated and show them that, in a sense, former President Trump and those like him are taking them for fools and are trying to use them for their own political goals. And as we close, Kurt Braddock, there are certain other forms of speech which are totally overt. Nothing about that kind of speech could be called subtle, like denying the Holocaust or being outright anti-Semitic or racist or xenophobic. We just saw again, not to overemphasize former President Trump, but you know he openly dined with anti-Semitic Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. Fuentes, this notorious anti-Semite, white supremacist, neo-Nazi. Trump denied he knew who Fuentes was, just like he denied knowing who David Duke was in 2016, this former grand wizard of the detestable
detestable KKK, Ku Klux Klan racist organization, among these more subtle stochastic messages and these overt messages of racism, white supremacy. Where do we stand here in this country in terms of combating this type of speech, which can lead to violence? Well, I think here the main step is to hold people's feet to the fire, so to speak, when they say things like, I didn't know who Nick Fuentes was, or I didn't know what yay formerly Kanye West stands for. I find that too often when an individual claims ignorance about these certain topics or having engaged in certain rhetoric or having been co-present with some detestable individuals, that they're often kind of taken at their word they didn't know. I think there's a responsibility, not just of the press, but of other politicians as well, to press them on those sorts of issues. If you didn't know who Nick Fuentes was, why were you having dinner with them? What does that say about your judgment that you are willing to have dinner with somebody you don't know who they are? Why should we vote for somebody to be leader of the United States and the head of one of the biggest nuclear arsenals in the world if you don't know who you're having dinner with. These are the sorts of follow-up questions that need to be had. There need to be legitimate reasons given for why these sorts of things happen. That's number one. And the same thing can go for things like stochastic terrorism. When certain phrases are said and certain actions are undertaken, when violence does occur, and it has occurred and will continue to occur, that invokes the same language used by some of these individuals individuals. When that happens, people need to be held liable for their rhetoric. Not only should they be asked, well, did you know that this action was taken and they use the same language that you did? They need to be asked if they recognize the dangerous implications of their language. Make them answer for their words. That's not to say that they should be indicted. It's not to say they should be charged with incitement, but people need to be held responsible for the things they say. Words have consequences, and we've seen those consequences in blood and in lives. I think it's it's time that we, and by we I mean the press, the voting public, and other politicians and pundits need to stick with these lines of questions that make people account for their words when what they say is invoked in actual violent action. Kurt Braddock is professor of public communication at American University and author of Weaponized Words, The Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter-Radicalization. Thank you so much, Kurt Braddock, for your excellent and very timely insights. Carol, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.